I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, legal innovation, and the impact tech is having on the law. Today's episode is a conversation with lawyer and tech founder Len Hickey. He's the founder of Litigates. That's an app that helps legal teams evaluate legal and litigation risk and help them make better decisions so they know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Back when I was practicing and still doing litigation, as a matter of course, clients would ask me, what are the chances we'll win? How much do you think the case is worth? Should we proceed? Is it even worth it spending the money on legal fees? So in response, I do some back of the napkin math, try to calculate some odds, look at information that was available like jury verdicts, and try to come up with the best answer I could. Well, that was back then in the Stone Ages, but now there's an app for that. On today's show, I have a conversation with IP lawyer and founder of Litigays, Len Hickey. Even though he's founded a legal tech company, Len is still in private practice, so he's getting these kinds of questions all the time. As we will hear, Len is a little better at math and Excel than I ever was, and to answer the questions he was getting from his clients about what their cases were worth, he developed some sophisticated spreadsheets to analyze odds and what his clients' expected outcomes might be worth. After a while, as many founders do, Len said to himself, there's got to be a better way to do this. So he taught himself to code and put together a beta version of Litigaze. With beta version in hand, he showed it to some friends. They liked it, so Len decided to take the next step and hire developers to make a real app, and in January 2021, Litigaze went live. Litigaze is a cool tool and one that I wish I had when I was still litigating. It's software that enables you to build graphical decision trees, and for each step in a legal project, you can estimate the odds of the direction a decision might go. You can also add monetary values for outcomes and decision points, and behind the scenes, Litigaze will take all that information and calculate the various values of outcomes that might happen. So what would motivate a lawyer with a thriving IP practice to build software? Well, it's if that lawyer also has a science degree. What did you study in undergrad? So obviously a law degree, but I combined that with a science degree. So you got a dual. Yeah, dual degree. And that's typical in Australia. You typically, as an undergraduate, have another degree tacked on. But yeah, most of my friends were probably doing arts or commerce or more sort of sensible combinations with law degree. But I'm sort of naturally better at science, which probably explains a bit about my um, passion for litigators and, and that sort of thing. But why law? You like the science, but why law? I guess it's a good generalist degree here in Australia as well. So it's a degree that allows you to potentially pivot into other areas. So I had lots of friends who went through law school with me and ended up going to, I don't know, investment banking or different areas. Um, so that was probably the, the reason I chose it. Um, I did switch at the last minute from... Uh, dentistry as my first preference oh. for university to, to law. I'd worked at a dental practice for about 10 years up until that point um, as a dental technician, funny enough. So my boss at the time wasn't very happy with me changing. Uh, but uh, yeah. It's not that far off. A lot of people would say that going to see a lawyer is akin to going to see a dentist. They're both kind of painful, right? Yeah, similar, similar <laughs> levels of pain and fear and trepidation all that stuff. You practice IP law. Yes. Did you always? Right out of university, did you start doing IP or how'd you get into that? I always wanted to practice IP law, but I did finish university right in the midst of the GFC. So this was 2008, 2009. So at that time, I was just scrambling to get a job sort of anywhere because a lot of law firms were, um, you know, freezing their hirings and stuff. Um, But fortunately enough, yeah, I got into an IP boutique at the start of my career. And yeah, that's where I've been practicing ever since. And was that your plan? You wanted to do IP? Yeah, as I say, at university, it was the area that sort of interested me most. You know, patent law and copyright law were pretty interesting, I found. So that was 
why and probably the other big thing is I like stuff that's quite tangible in the sense it's something I can see the outcomes of in the real world. So, you know, brands, for example, in, in IP law is something that's very practical in the sense I'll walk down the super, supermarket aisle with my wife and be, you know, monitoring the brands I see on the, the products to see if there's anything that's close to my clients and things like that. So I, I sort of like the fact that it's very sort of down to earth in, in that way. So of course, it can get very technical as well. Patent law can become quite complicated, but um, yeah. Well, we'll get to the nitty gritty of what Litigaze does in a second, but what was it that inspired you to create a business? Because you're still practicing and you're doing this while at a law firm. What was the inspiration to actually go into the business world? In terms of just that part of it, so one of the things I, reason I built Litigaze was to use it myself. So to have that capability in my own practice and at the time I did, you know, I didn't plan on doing that, right? I wasn't. Oh, so you were uh, scratching your own itch. You were scratching your own itch yeah, and then correct. decided to so go. Correct. This is a problem I saw in my own practice and wanted to solve, you know, um, for my own clients. And at the time I around and there weren't any sort of tools that I thought were sufficient. There wasn't really anything. And, and also just a lack of understanding generally in the law about this type of approach and the techniques meant that I sort of felt like, um, I guess there was an opportunity for me to do something myself, but also there was a need because there wasn't anything that was quite up to scratch in terms of what I was, you know, the level of performance or quality I was expecting from my own clients. So yeah, I took the dive. You run into me in the elevator. Tell me about litigation. How do you sell it to me? Sure. So litigation is uh, at its core a litigation risk analysis platform. And that means it's software that's designed to help lawyers or legal teams, in-house lawyers or outside counsel who are working on litigation to better understand, communicate and evaluate the risk in litigation. So typically, if you're dealing in litigation, you'll be well aware that it's a risky proposition, right? No lawyer is going to give you certainty on outcomes, for example, and all, all lawyers will be good or litigators will be good at explaining the fact that they don't control the litigation. What they control is the arguments and the submissions and the briefs and all that sort of stuff which puts you in the best position to have a successful outcome, but there's no ultimate control on, on winning. But often that's sort of where it stops in terms of the, the sophistication of risk analysis that, analysis that goes on. So what litigators is designed to do is to really supercharge a lawyer's ability to give sophisticated analysis, both in terms of identifying the risks, a really granular level of, you know, saying a particular issue that has a particular likelihood around it, not just a win-lose proposition right on a case, much more granular. Do it in a way that's sort of visual, so it's very clear and easy for clients to understand and see. And finally, the final piece is to do it in a way that actually allows you to evaluate the risk. And what that means is we use some sort of economic modeling in the background that allows you to build an analysis as I say, using these sort of visual tools, they're very intuitive tools, but then generate some risk benchmarks, which are really just numbers that help you show um, the overall prospects of a case. So for example, if I'm running a litigation of a breach of contract case, I can go into litigators, build my analysis, use some assumptions in that process, but build an analysis that I think will show my client all the potential outcomes and litigators will then allow me to crunch the numbers, I don't have to do the maths, obviously that's what the software does, but which will produce a valuation of the whole case overall. And that's really useful. So it's useful because at some point in a litigation, and it can be even pre-litigation, right, but there'll be a question asked by the client, you know, what's this worth to me? Should I go ahead with this? Should I push on? Should I try and get some sort of 
commercial settlement outcome with the other side. And doing this sort of analysis allows you to have a really powerful, as I say, benchmark evaluation of the case. So you can, your client can then think, you know, uh, see those two um, future outcomes in a really sort of clear way. Um, so, for example, in a, in a settlement decision, a client will say, well, I've been offered X amount, let's say it's a, a claim for contract breach uh, and there's a $10 million damages prospect at the end of the day. But, of course, that's a risky prospect, right? There's no guarantee we'll get there. We might lose the case. There's lots of ways it can go. Litigators will allow me to show all those different paths to victory or loss or whatever and then generate a number. So let's say our assessment comes out at $2.5 million of the evaluation of the case. That's a really powerful thing for my client to have, right? Because then they can say, well, if I'm given a settlement offer that's a million bucks, it's too low. Or if it's five million, you know, it's in that, in the range where I think it's uncomfortable to accept it based on this risk adjusted assessment. The cool thing about the app too is it's more than just, hey, plug in some chances with some outcomes and plug in some numbers and it spits out your probability of winning X. You can also use it as a decision tree to even get to a position where money might be in the offing in the form of a settlement or a damages verdict. You got to run through motions. You can plug in the, you know, the winner loss and the motion. So you can go through from start to finish what it takes to prosecute or defend a lawsuit and look at various outcomes along the way. Yeah, so definitely, even if you don't want to focus on that evaluation piece that I mentioned, which is a big sort of um, benefit of it, but if, yeah, you want to focus on just the idea of identifying the different paths to victory, we're able to do that too. And the other thing to mention is it's fully customizable, right? So you mentioned sort of some specific things that might be, you know, I mean, emotions in the US, for example, but we're targeting a sort of global audience because the idea here is that the fact that litigation is risky doesn't change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Right. Obviously, the relevant laws do and all of that, but it's risky everywhere, right? So our tools are you know, sort of universally applicable in that sense. And we've deliberately built them so that they don't have a sort of particular jurisdictional focus. So it means they're fully you know, customizable to a circumstance like you just mentioned or something totally different in the UK, for example. So we've got customers all over the place doing it for different things. And before you built out the app, I assume you're doing this on spreadsheets? Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, the, the magic of Excel, right? It's uh, it's the ubiquitous thing you do in business. And this is probably another point to mention in terms of that motivation piece behind starting Lugay. So I did work in-house for a while at a, a food company called Kraft Heinz, which is a global food company. And one thing you'll see working in-house is, is how dominant Excel is in just, you know, even talking to people, right? They often talk to you via spreadsheets. And in that role, I was actually reporting to our chief financial officer on on the budget for the legal team as well so i was i uh, had to very quickly become good at, at least in excel not not an expert probably but good enough to be able to talk the talk in the business and so yeah i got good at excel there and from that point i was able to start yeah doing these techniques in excel the problem with excel is it's a great universal tool for doing lots of things but that means for doing particular niche things it can be a bit cumbersome and so this sort of analysis the fact that it's focusing on this idea of branching, you know, chances or the, the way that litigation can become, you know, from right now, it could go into 50 different directions down the track. is not something that's easy to do in Excel or it's doable, but certainly manipulating it, uh, an analysis after you've spent, you know, two weeks building it is really hard. So um, I did that a lot, but I must say at the time when I was using Excel, I presented to some, um, and this was back when I was in private practice, I presented to some clients with those techniques and they you know, sort of really liked it. So that was, again, another sort of 
little push for me to try and build something myself. We're going to step away from my conversation with Len Hickey for just a couple minutes, but when we come back, Len tells us about his light bulb moment when he decided to build Litigaze and how he learned on the fly how to create software and build a legal tech company. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. We need to do more with less. That is the key takeaway nowadays from almost every survey of in-house counsel. But what if it didn't have to be that way? What if you actually could do more for less? By combining legal expertise and technology, Percipient enables legal teams to get more work done for less. Buried in contracts and sales is frustrated with turnaround time? We can help with that. Did you just get hit with a subpoena and reviewing 100,000 documents and files will tax your resources or cost you a small fortune in billable hours? We can help there too. Our team of legal professionals leverage tech and project management principles with the right amount of human oversight to deliver precise, efficient, and cost-effective legal solutions. Whether it's legal operations and contract management support, subpoena compliance, or document review, Percipient is your partner in really doing more for less. Percipient. Legal services powered by technology. We'll get back to my conversation with Lynn in just a minute, but I want to let you know that if you want to subscribe to the podcast, you can find us pretty much wherever podcasts are found, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. If you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at cmain at percipient.co. That's C-M-A-I-N at percipient.co. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Len Hickey. He's just about to tell us about his light bulb moment when he decided to found Litigaze. As I mentioned, I was working in a food company for a while, and that's where I really got this glimpse into the business obsession, really, with using numeric analysis and probabilities and stuff to help them decide on important decisions. And so that was when you know I thought, oh, this is something that the business, uh, you know, this is a big business, obviously, but I'm assuming it's a lot like other businesses. They like to do this sort of approach. Went back to private practice, and I was sort of tinkering around with the ideas in my own client advice. You were starting to think about it adding this to your private practice in your counseling of your clients? Yeah, well, so having, having seen it on the inside, you know, at a client, what, what really drives their decision-making, right? And this is, as a lawyer, you want to be impactful in your advice, right? You want to align with your client's own way of thinking, I guess, about things. And so, you know, legal is often seen as a function within the business that's quite distinct from other functions. Right. But, you know, I wanted it to be, when I was in-house, I wanted it to be as good as, say, the guys in the transport logistics division, at using this sort of really sophisticated modeling to predict outcomes and to, you know, baseline analysis, all this sort of stuff. These guys are doing the trucks, right, that drive around the food, yet the smart lawyers down the other end of the office, you know, advising on multi-million dollar litigation couldn't get any, you know, anywhere near that sort of sophistication in terms of our advice. I mean, we're very sophisticated on legal issues, of course. I'm not talking about that, right? On the legal issues, that's what the lawyers are really good at. And sort of, you know, that's our job, right, in, in a core sense. But the idea of saying to the business, you know, here's a percentage chance of this outcome, uh, here's the expected value of it, you know, this sort of analysis was being done everywhere else. And so when I was in-house, I was like, all right, well, if we can help the legal team, so coming back outside now, if I can help my internal lawyers get that sort of purchase with their, you know, C-suite who are, you know, they're reporting to or whatever, it's going to be really great for their jobs too. So I guess, yeah, that was where I had that baseline motivation come through and then back in private practice obviously your perspective is a bit different but it's the same sort of thing I wanted to yeah help my clients achieve or get to the uh, most confident decision making 
they can get in litigation. Again, bearing in mind it's inherently risky, we can't control it, but I wanted to improve their ability to look at a litigation, a really risky proposition, maybe a settlement offer, and confidently be able to say, you know, we've analysed this to a very rigorous level and here's the decision I'm going to make on the back of that. So, yeah, in private practice, I was back in private practice now, I was, um, you know, tinkering around with Excel and, and getting some good traction with clients. So you were providing the Excel analysis to the client saying, hey, if we go forward with this strategy and this litigation or this dispute, this is how our, our probabilities. Yeah, and so one of the good things about these techniques is, as I mentioned at the start, this sort of a visual way of doing things, right? So this lends itself well to actually presenting to clients. So I remember probably a tipping point, at least, in, in getting me to you know go down the litigators rabbit hole was when I presented to a fairly large accounting practice client on this pre-trial discovery application we were doing. Fairly complex, you know, lots of risk involved and stuff. And we actually went to the board members of the client and were presenting to them. So I thought in a presentation, you know, this is where I could really show right. um, all this hard work I'm typically been doing in the background, right? I, I wasn't very, at the start at least, very confident myself in presenting this sort of analysis to clients because it quite can be quite sort of, it's a new way to do things in a lot of ways. But it, this was the opportunity I said, listen, I think this is the best way to show this client, you know, the risks involved in this case to help, you know, these smart people, you know, make a call what to do. And so I did, and I actually had the slideshow up of our normal talking points. And then I presented this visual diagram, which I'd built in Excel of the different decision tree way it could go and the different evaluated outcomes with their expected values, probabilities and all that. And they loved it. So they really thought, wow, this is really helpful. You've summarized the risk in a way that, you know, they understood. These were accountants, right? So the numbers didn't scare them at all. In fact, right. that was probably the thing they loved most about it. But also just, yeah, the visualization of it was, it helped the discussion we had was really easy there, right? Because you just had one big image up on the screen showing, you know, all of these, all of this complexity uh, in one really clean image. And that led to a lot of, you know, interesting discussion on how we should run the case. And so on the back of that experience, I thought, wow, well, if when I was in house, it seemed like a really great way to go about things. Now I'm showing clients these same sort of techniques or the advice that uh, incorporates these techniques and getting really good feedback so I should try a bit harder with this right and, and get a bit more going and that was when I started looking around for tools that would be you know more easy to use than Excel because it is quite cumbersome and you did obviously you didn't find any that there are tools right but quite old or, or quite you know um, I'd just say unsatisfactory in terms of user experience and the level of polish I have because you know as lawyers we like to be very polished in the way we present things and so I didn't think there was anything that I was really happy with well i couldn't do better in excel right i could do excel quite well at that point and there was nothing there that would do it better for me but i still wanted to make it easier to do because it did take a lot longer probably than um, was warranted but uh yeah and that was the point where i said well this is not just for me an opportunity i think that was probably yeah where the light bulb went off and said well i can't be the only lawyer or maybe i am but (laughs) as it turns out i'm not but um the only lawyer who's thinking about this sort of stuff and particularly with the client need for it right that sort of demand coming from the client side and so I thought, listen, I'll, I'll try and do something myself. You know, it's a little bit of a, a proof of concept initially. Can you code? I can now. Um, at the start, I couldn't. So that was another interesting part of the journey. So you learned to code as part of this process too? Yeah, I did. So as I, as I mentioned at the start, I've got a science degree. So um, it probably came fairly naturally to me uh, in some ways. But yeah, it was something I wanted to do as well as a little bit of a coming from a different perspective. I I like the idea of learning to code. So I can now, but in a particular area, so more on the front end side of 
software. We obviously have developers as well. Who Did you come up with the beta yourself? Yeah, so I use, and this is a, you know, a cool thing that we have a lot more now. This is a few years ago when I started, but um, some cool no-code tools to help me build actually a, a prototype product that wasn't really client-ready. I couldn't use it in, in my client practice, but certainly you know, to show to people and get their feedback on initially. So, yeah, there's a bunch of tools you can use these days that are really good to get those initial MVPs. I'm just going to go to chat GBT and, and ask it to, to build Well, it's even easier now, right? Yeah, <laughs> build me some software, chat GBT. And these tools are still around, right? There's no code, code tools, and they're really good at getting you to a, you know, a minimum, not really even a minimum viable product, but just something that's like a prototype right. that sort of shows a direction and, you know, gives you that sort of like, this could work. And so I did that initially myself, and then you know, at a point I had to engage proper developers to get it, the software going. But so you get the prototype, kind of proof of concept. Do you take it out for developers? Do you show it to VC guys to get some funding? Do you bootstrap? What was the next step to get this going? And by the way, I'm just you know making this up as I go at the time. I sort of still <laughs> am, right? But um, I didn't want to go to sort of the VC path. I've got some friends in that space, and but I, I was. Still, and still I'm committed to my, you know, day job in, in a lot of ways as a lawyer. So I wanted to see how I could do it as a more of a side hustle type thing. So the idea of yeah, bootstrapping it and I having still had a day job meant I could, you know, afford to do that uh, as well, which was, was good. But yeah, it was mainly going to developers at that point. So, you know, talking to actual software guys about is this uh, viable, you know, what's it going to cost, how much, you know, how would you stage this so you can get it without building the best thing straight away, you know, right. iterate over time and all that stuff. And so I didn't meet a whole different, you know, bunch of people on how to do that. And that's a really interesting thing as well, right, for founders or for people who are thinking about starting their own software company. I mean, that part is a real daunting part of it. Because right. you, you, you get such a divergence of views on like, yeah, we need to spend a million bucks just getting this, yeah. you know, software going and you've got to do all of this stuff, bells and whistles. And then at the other end, the path I ultimately went down, which was freelance developers, so individual right. developers who I worked with. That was going to be my next question. You didn't use a dev shop, you used freelance developer. How big was your team? At the time, there were just a couple. And so one sort of main back-end guy, we call them the back-end is sort of the guy, person who works on the software and the servers and the cloud. And then the front-end person is the person who builds the software that users interact with. And they need to talk to each other, obviously. But yeah, we just had two. But the idea was, yeah, that, that's a great option in terms of costs and certainly your ability to control things, but it is much more time consuming because you're not sort of outsourcing right. the management as well. So I'd be having calls with my team who were you know, based in Eastern Europe at the time, you know, late night talking about all sorts of nitty gritty problems with the software. But I think, you know, I, I was prepared to do that. What year did you start building the, the beta? It's a few years ago now, the, the very early stage concept. And then I think Jan 2021, we sort of launched the serious product in a more public way. So we did even, in, in fact, have a, and because obviously I'm a practicing lawyer, I've got a network of people in IP as well. I deal with a lot of international lawyers because I have, you know, trademarks file overseas and whatnot. And so I did use a bit of that network initially to get feedback from people who I already knew. Unfortunately, there were some who were really happy to, you know, give me their time to say, you know, the software's not really working. You had beta testers. You, you sent it out and said, hey, run this, run some. Yeah, I think it's even before beta, right? Like, there's an alpha or something like where the software is just not really even right. working. But <laughs> so this was at the time where it was like they couldn't possibly use it in their client advice. It wasn't good enough. But the idea of, yeah, you know, is it something they could see using or something they could, you know, uh, imagine, you know, if it got to that level of it needed to, to actually, you know, deploy in their own advice. And yeah, it was great feedback. And that was really useful because 
you know, they'd come back and say, oh, why don't you make it do this land? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, we can do that. And then you know, you'd talk to the developers and they'd say it's a very challenging thing. And, but, but, you know, the user feedback, I think, is the biggest thing I've learned in terms of the development. If the user says something's, you know, worth doing, you've got to really look at that pretty carefully. You don't want to be sort of driven by what your users think. Right. But um, you've got to have an overarching vision of what your software should be doing and the, the area it's focused on. But at the same time, if a user says it right, it matters enough to them that it's probably worth us really looking at closely. So we did a lot of that for a period of, say, you know, six to 12 months even. It took probably longer than it would if I was dedicated to it full time. You started working with the developers six months to a year. I see you launch in January 2021. So beginning of 2020, you're starting to bring in the developers? Yeah, exactly. And it may have even been a little early to that. It might have been close to 18 months um, with COVID and everything. But as I say, it was a side hustle thing, so I didn't see a need to rush it. I didn't have the, the time at that point to actually dedicate to it so that it would be a lot quicker. And it didn't really matter because I'd been working on it for years right before. So Craft Times was, right. you know, years before. And it didn't look like there was someone who was interested in coming to the market. I was happy for, you know, a larger player to come in and say, here's a great bit of software that will do all this stuff you want, Len. You don't have to, but it just wasn't happening. So I thought, you know, the, in terms of the de- development timeframe, yeah, it could have been quicker, but... And certainly what I've learned since, right, is the, the rate at which the legal industry adopts new software anyways. <laughs> not super quick, let's put it that way. So I think, you know, that's been fine in terms of setting the pace of the business yeah. overall um, as not a sort of not aiming for that super fast growth um, early on. So you launched in January 2021. What did you do to market? How did you get the word out? Lots of probably things that didn't work, ultimately. <laughs> did do some paid advertisements, but I feel like, they were probably not a great idea at the time. But yeah, so lots of different things. Uh, I'm just trying to think what other things we did. But ultimately what we've found, at least since that initial launch, is the, the word of mouth is our biggest right. way of doing business. Actually, I did some podcasts early on as well. So there you go. Um, I saw that. But certainly, yeah, the idea that you can just sort of buy an ad and someone's going to come and buy your product is just yeah. something you learn pretty quickly. It's not going to happen. We tried a bunch of things like sort of content marketing where we try and produce articles on the topic, so not focused on our software per se, but the idea of, you know, um, what it's, I guess, its reason for being and the why part of it and and do that separately. So we developed a website, for example, called probabilitylaw.com. Which is cool. I checked it out. Yeah, which is sort of a website. It's, you know, free and and all of that. And you just go on and it provides information and some little tools that we've put out of our own software and just put online for helping lawyers use probabilities. So this is the idea of, you know, um, when you're doing this analysis, I should have emphasized, like, you've got to use some numbers, right? And one of the numbers is a percentage as opposed to right. a word like good chances or, you know, reasonable prospects. So that's what we use in our own software, right? But one of the things we realized is that some lawyers don't even want to do that or, or aren't comfortable doing that, I should say, because it's not something that comes naturally to them. So we saw this, you know, there's a learning point that happens before they even really engage with our software around just probabilities, so the idea here is we can build this website that gives them information, give, you know, any lawyer who wants to go to it, information on how to do that and some interesting studies from other fields that have been done on that topic. And that's sort of, yeah, I guess, again, that's maybe not marketing in a traditional sense, but it, it, the idea is... No, it is, though. Creating, it is, right? I mean, yeah. you're, you're trying to get eyeballs to probability law. So there can, someone is curious about learning about probabilities and how that translates into settlements and verdicts and, you know, outcomes. So I, th- I think it is, but... We should point out that one cool thing about litigates too is, yeah, it's, it's very sophisticated. You got the numbers. Let's say you're not a mathematician. You do give the users some options, word-based, word-based options of how so- likely something is, like very likely or 
possibly. You have things like that that they can select. Users can select about the outcome of any particular thing that they're they're considering. Yeah. And by default, your software applies a numeric value to that. Obviously, if it's very likely, it's higher than maybe, right? Yeah. So this is the idea of, again, yeah, if you're a lawyer, and a bit like me, right, even though I live and breathe this stuff with the numbers and I talk the talk, when I'm naturally presented with a risky proposition from a client, I will, in my mind, think of a word, right? There'll be something like, I'm like, oh, this is unlikely, or there's not a good chance here. And so this is, you know, the normal way I think, you know, you'd think instinctively and viscerally. But again, we need to translate that into a number, as you say, to get, you know, actually modeling done on it and actually some analysis. So what we want to do is help lawyers. And I think what you were talking about when I showed you the software the other day is this idea of, yeah, this, this going from the words to the numbers piece. And so we don't provide it proscriptive, uh, you know, here's how you've got to do it. If you're thinking likely, it means X percent. But we certainly provide a guide that helps lawyers who are starting out from that point of thinking, yeah, I've got my clients. Okay, this is a, a risky breach claim. I think, you know, their likelihood of success is it's, it's okay, but it's not great or it's maybe an even chance. And we provide ways to actually help lawyers, you know, go from that place to then, you know, ascribing a number. And there's other things we offer in the software that allows, you know, for example, like a, a range of probabilities is an impossible thing to deal with mathematically. Any range, you know, you can't do analysis on it. But we allow our users to create different scenarios on their chances. So you might have a baseline probability is, you know, it's a 55% chance we'll win on this issue. But then an optimistic view, if everything was going really well, I could have 65%. Equally, a pessimistic view, I can go down to 45 So we want to help lawyers you know, deal with these issues that's in practice all the time. Uh, I want to give my client precise advice, but I'm doing it in a context where that's really hard to do because in a way litigation pushes against you when you're wanting precision, right? Because right. there's so much uncertainty. And so we're really focused on providing tools that allow you to achieve a level of precision that sort of clients expect in terms of, you know, making a multi-million dollar call on litigation. I don't want a number that's just plucked out of the air. I don't want guesswork. Right. I want precision, but I don't want to put the lawyer in a place where they feel like they're so committed to a number that down the track, if things go differently, then they're in trouble, right? Because they set this course. So I think, you know, that's the balance we're constantly trying to find with our software, helping lawyers be really precise and clear, but also recognizing that they're not giving the client a silver bullet. They're advising in an inherently difficult situation of risk and uncertainty, but they can do the advice in a way that gives the client some, you know, way to move forward rationally and sensibly. And to your point earlier, where you said when you f first started to think about this as a product was when you were given the presentation with slides to the prospective client. This is a very solid marketing tool for lawyers and private, or even internal lawyers at at companies. You know, when you, when they're pitching, you know, should we take this case? Shouldn't we take this case? Or the client asks you, "What do you think? Should I take the case? Should we move forward?" A lawyer can use your tool and go, "Hey, look, yeah, you should, or no, you shouldn't, and here's why." As to your point, most other lawyers are just like, "Well." 50-50, let's, you know, kind of spitball it. Yeah, or the other option is a 50-page memo that is really right. hard to get a, you know, impactful, you know, you can tell the client all the detail in that, but, yeah, getting that sort of more, you know, impact in the room, here's what we think, you know, it's much harder to do with a, a lengthy memo. You still have that, right? So that's the other thing. Our software doesn't take any of that away. That should still happen. But we then allow you, yeah, to sit on top of that, an overarching view of things that really summarizes what you think. It's one thing for a client to ask you, what do you think, uh, Mr. Lawyer? Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. I don't know. 70-30. If XYZ happens, 
This is actually laying it out in a graphic form with formulas behind it. It's more solid. That's right. And and it helps both the client because, as you say, they're the one who can have the advantage of all that, the rigor that's been put into it without that sort of sense of, you know, the classic lawyer line, it depends, right? We get lawyers away from that into a much more clear analysis. But it helps the lawyer too because when you're doing these things, uh, when you're building these analyses in practice, and this is even me still, right, when I'm doing it, you'll see things you maybe miss or it'll help you be very deliberate in in the way you see things going and think through things that are hard to think about, right? You know, thinking about chances and future predictions, but doing it in a way that I take my time to do it. It forces you to go through all the options. All right, if we file this motion, you know, there's a 50% chance, then we got to go to the next step. You know, we get to mediation. And when you were running me through it last week, you know, you could, another thing to think through, well, we could win on count one, and it would be the value of the case is X, or maybe we lose on that and win on count two, and it's Y. So it forces you to roadmap and walk through every potential outcome. And so, yeah, that's right. And so we've even had customers who've used it, not for the evaluation side, but again, for that, that part of just visualizing where it could go and present it to judges, right? And show if judge, you're on a, if, if we go down this path, if you find on this issue, you're going to have to find on this issue and this issue. And for yeah, like a great. complex litigation where there's 50 issues, just even that part of making sense of what issues do we need to find to get the liability, right? Or how, how does that all map together? It allows you to really map that together neatly in a way that's comprehensive because you are capturing all the things you need to, but also helpful because it sort of directs you through the different paths that it could go. You know, this would be great for mediation, like as a party mediator or the mediator itself. Like if you bring that in there as a mediator, you could talk to somebody and go, all right, let's, let's run this through. Like what are, you, what are your chances of winning on this? What are your chances of winning on this claim or losing and you can run it through and it's right there for you yeah certainly and i've i've used it in mediations myself even sort of on the fly right you'll change things as right new information comes to light in a mediation that you know sometimes happens but also from a mediator's point of view so we have customers who are mediators right and they do exactly that they'll build an analysis you know before the mediation and then be able to present it to each side and build separate ones obviously for the two parties so there's no um sharing information that shouldn't pass between them and then, yeah, it can help the mediators sort of draw the attention to the fact that, you know, it's going to cost you a lot of money or all of those things that they normally do. But it's just, bang, again, a visual summary that is very easy for the non-lawyers in the room, so the commercial stakeholders of the client at the mediation to really instantly get. What's on the roadmap? What are your plans? Well, always planning to make the software better, you know, developing new features all the time, of course. But I think, you know, one of my plans for 2023 at least, and I haven't done this very formally, but the idea of focusing on particular areas. So we've got, as I mentioned sort of earlier, you know, it's jurisdiction agnostic, so this can be used anywhere. But at the same time, there's certain sort of practice areas or industries that are probably more interested in it. So for example, we have a a UK-based pharmaceutical company that, you know, is using it for their patent litigation. And that's obvious because I'm an IP lawyer, right? But the idea of sort of thinking about (laughs) where the pain points be, and one, one that's not as easy for me because... I'm an IP lawyer, is insurance law, right? So the idea of if they're using it for the sort of high stakes litigation, right, which makes sense, you need to do analysis on a billion dollar case because you got it. It's that important. There's that much at stake. We've got to do as much as we can to analyze risk and uncertainty. That makes sense. At the other end, though, you have this interesting phenomenon of high volume litigation where this stuff can be equally as useful because you want to just sort of be able to sort of say, here's a number on this analysis and you do it over time, right? So the idea is, litigation allows you to sort of just duplicate these analyses all the time, right? 
So an analysis that you do today, you'll do again tomorrow in a different way. Or a case that you run today, I don't know, for high volume insurance claims or, or sort of employment law claims that are sort of not as high value as those big patent cases, but certainly the frequency of them justifies having a rigorous way to assess the settlement outcome rather than each time just sort of saying, oh, last time it was this, sort of in that range. You know, Now you can sort of over time build up a very clear position on what you should be doing based on your the probabilities you change every time. Um, but that sort of allows you. So I guess in terms of your question of where we're going yet, we want to be able to sort of pinpoint these areas more. And that's just about us engaging with firms and, you know, and companies on what, you know, whether there's an opportunity there. I focused on IP because obviously it's a bit easier for me to talk about that because I'm an IP lawyer. Um, but now we're starting to sort of think of other areas where I don't have the natural, you know, our team doesn't have that sort of natural abilities in to, you know, push into those and see what we can find. So I think insurance law and, you know, employment law are two areas we're sort of really keen to, to push into more. Glenn, speaking of engagement, if people want to learn more about Litigaze, get a hold of you, where should they go? Just the usual way through Google. Uh, Litigaze is an unusual word, so it should come up. And it's L-I-T-I-G-A-Z-E. Uh, Litigaze with a Z instead of a T. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn and, and Twitter, so I'm pretty active in the legal tech community there. I know, Chad, you're great as well on, on these channels. So I actually would say to people who are listening and, and don't you know, get on Twitter much or, or LinkedIn, it's really Great. There's some great communities there in the legal tech space in particular. So uh, being in Australia, I'm a bit further away from a lot of the action that happens overseas in the States and whatnot. But things like Twitter make it really easy to, you know, keep in finger on the pulse with, with legal tech and all that sort of stuff. So I'd recommend people do that if they're not already. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.